Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast. My name is Dan Roselle, and as always, I'm joined by John Fisher. Good morning, John. Good morning, Dan. It has been an interesting week of developments in the world of the NHL, but before we get to the NHL, we're going to start with the IIHF. Uh, because there are some announcements in terms of the World Junior Championship rosters. And of course, you know, if you've been following along with the news at all, there are several teams who will not have some of their best prospects available for that tournament because of the ongoing pandemic and pending test results there. And other teams are trying to settle in their rosters. And by the time the tournament's actually played, who knows what it's going to look like. But Making the team is still a good indicator of a prospect standing within at least their country's program, which is uh, which is often a decent indicator of how they'll do for a team. And so this year, the Devils are sending six representatives to the World Junior Championship, and uh, there probably could have been more. It's just that there's some considerations to make with them being on the actual Devils roster, a.k.a. Jack Hughes. Uh, he wasn't going anywhere the whole time, and I don't know why people no. thought he was. But the six uh, players in the Devils system that will be representing their countries on this stage should the tournament proceed as planned are Shakir Mukamadoulin and Arseny Gritsyuk for Russia, Dawson Mercer for Canada, Yarmir Pitlick for the Czech Republic, Patrick Moynihan makes the U.S. team again. And, of course, Alexander Holtz uh, had no problems coasting onto the Swedish roster. So that's six different prospects, including all three first-round picks from this past year. And so in terms of what this news means to the Devils, John, help us kind of figure out what these prospects participating in this tournament means for them moving forward um, in New Jersey. Well, as you briefly mentioned uh, earlier, is that making the World Junior Championship roster is the honor. Whether or not, like, the, the World Junior Championships, then is the world's biggest under-20 uh, men's tournament in the world. It is a very important international competition. A lot of countries use the U-20s to determine whether, or, you know, the future of their program for World Championships and Olympic play. And as mentioned, as you mentioned, it's a good indicator of, like, who are the best prospects in that country. Now, granted, in this year and in past years, there's always a debate over that. Uh, for especially the Canadian team, you know, they have more talent than they know what to do with. So, you know, you could almost make a very competitive World Junior team out of the guys who didn't make the World Junior Championship team for Canada. Right. And then, of course, you have countries like Russia, where, you know, politics internally have always played a significant role. Um, in terms of like, you know, who's got favor, who doesn't have favor. To, generally, I wouldn't say if you're not playing in Russia and unless you're super talented, you know, you can forget about going and playing for Russia uh, internationally, though this year is a little different. They actually have uh, two guys who are based in the queue and two college based players uh, on the roster. Um, so maybe they're opening up a little bit. And of course, with the United States program, they tend to favor national team developmental program players since that's the whole purpose of the national team developmental <laughs> yeah. program is right to develop players <laughs> specifically for these tournaments. <laughs> so uh, that being said, being named to the team is the big honor. Now, whether or not you do well at the tournament, I wouldn't put a lot of stock into it. Yes, you want to do well at a tournament like this. You know, it's something to get excited for. It's something to get hyped for. It's something that could indicate that this guy 
could be somebody to watch for the future. However, we're talking about a seven game tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot can happen in seven games in hockey. You could just have a bad week. If you're a goaltender, especially, you know, one bad game and that's, that's it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily look at the performance and go, okay, this guy's definitely an NHL player or this guy's not an NHL player. I would just view it as another data point as part of the larger season. Of course, this season being very challenging to evaluate since everybody has a complete different level of how many games they have played with some players in the tournament having played no games at all yet. So, you know... So for some of these players, like the Cole Perfettis, the Jack Quinns, the Ryan Suzuki's of of the hockey world, this is going to be their first on-ice activity in competitive play. Not to say that the Canadian uh, World Junior camp wasn't competitive, because it certainly was. But, you know, those guys are all OHL players, as I just mentioned, and they've played zero, zero games so far this year. So the World Junior Championships will be their first game. So... It's going to be a, a real challenge to see how it's going to go. But again, being named to the tournament is a great indicator of like how you're developing as a prospect and how talented you are because this the countries are generally sending the best of their best. Yeah, and it's a thing where you know you want to do well not only to prove your own stock, but you want to do well in a competition against your peers who you very likely will be encountering later on in your career in some capacity, whether it's in uh, you know your respective domestic leagues in the AHL and the NHL, ideally uh, for all these prospects. But yeah, it is really a tournament to see how you stack up against the best of the best of the people in your class who you'll be coming up through the leagues with. So I think it's a good indicator of not only, you know, how they stand currently compared to members of their draft classes or the ones above and below them generally, um, but also a good indication of, you know, what they need to make adjustments on based on how they perform at the tournament. And really, it's a good learning experience for a lot of these prospects. And unfortunately, there was another devil who made the uh, final cuts or almost final cuts of Team Canada, and that's Graham Clark. But uh, he unfortunately did not make the final 25 man team. No, but the fact he made it this far is remarkably impressive. I want to take a step back, Dan. I don't want to turn this into a World Junior Championship preview show because I don't I don't know about you, but my knowledge of under twenty <laughs> hockey isn't that strong to really say this is you know you know say something very intelligent about it that you can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. But the Canadian team is remarkably stacked at center. Mm-hmm. Like Seth Jarvis didn't make this team. Right. Hendricks Lapierre did not make this team. The entire forward group are all former first round draft picks. Mm-hmm. All of them. And the defensemen, all but two of them, are first-round draft picks. So to make so to be a final cut is impressive, since they could have easily said, "Clark, you're just here to make up the numbers. You know, you look good. You know, here and there, but you know, let's be real. You're not making this team over like a Jacob Pelletier or a Dawson Mercer or a Jack Quinn. Like you're just not. And um, you know, my understanding is that he scored in every scrimmage for Team Canada. Those scrimmages were. Again, broadcast because, again, the under-20s is a big deal in Canada. And since two of the three major junior leagues have not played a single game yet, this was a a prime opportunity to show them off. The team even has an NHL player in Bowen Byram, um, in addition to, you know, guys like Quinton Byfield, Kirby Dock. Um, So, you know, it's a team filled with star power, even without Alexis Lafreniere. Um, So the fact that Clark was a final cut, it just speaks to the fact that the guy has talent. And he certainly performed, but even doing well at the camp was not going to be enough to make this team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that stacked. And Canada, as I mentioned earlier, 
they have a wealth of talent. They can easily tell play, players that other countries would probably step over people that they lived with to get on their roster. Uh, they could, you know, Canada could say, no, we don't need you. Right. We got guys to fill in your spot. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's super, super competitive. And Canada specifically has this, you know, this air of, um, I get this air of, I don't even know how to say like honor or like prestige to making the world junior team. Like this is a thing that's well known across the country that, this world junior team is one of the most watched teams that Canada puts forward every year. It's, oh, it's yeah. something that, you know, the citizens very much look forward to, and it's something that they follow very, very closely. So to make this team is a whole other battle, and congratulations to Dawson Mercer on that. But congratulations to all six of these prospects for making their respective rosters. You know, some were more locks than others, I would say, based on where they're playing uh, right now and how they're performing in those leagues. But regardless, we'll be looking forward to seeing them uh, represent their countries on this stage. Yes. And, and for those of you who aren't aware, um, just to add to the Canadian prestige of this, the tournament's being held in Edmonton and Red Deer in a bubble. In fact, they're trying to fly out right now. When I say they, I mean the European teams mm -hmm. are trying to fly out right now to Canada um, on, you know, uh, planes. Um, what am I looking What is the word I'm looking for? Charter flights. <laughs> that's the word I'm looking for. And, you know, there's been a couple logistical issues, nothing COVID related, more like they have too much luggage for the plane related because uh, they're trying to fly three teams per plane, which is weird. But in any case, uh, the tournament setup, for those who are unaware, it's typically starting on Christmas and ends early into January. So that's another reason why this is a big, big deal, because it's the holiday season and, you know, you've got hockey on all day throughout the holidays from Christmas through New Year's and through the final the first weekend or so of the of the year. And you've got Canada in group A with Slovakia, Finland, Switzerland, and Germany. Canada's probably gonna win that group. And then group B is probably the one you're probably more interested in as a Devils fan since Sweden has Alexander Holtz, Czech Republic has Yarmir Pitlick, USA has um Patrick Moynihan, and Russia has Shakir Mukamadulin and Arcee Gritsiuk. And they're all in the same group. Mm -hmm. So Watch Group B, but you got until Christmas. Get your gifts, get your trees up, and then go watch some hockey. All right. And so while you uh, enjoy that World Junior Championship, you can also look forward to the start of what looks like it'll be NHL training camp as the return to play format seems to be focused on somewhere around January 13th. And, yes. you know, it hasn't officially been confirmed by the NHL. It's pretty much like the discussions are all but done that's where we're at as we record this podcast and involved in that return to play is a very unwelcome change for our New Jersey Devils and a temporary division realignment where the Devils will be playing a 56 game gauntlet because I can't think of any other way to describe it against the likes of the Metropolitan Division plus um, or minus Carolina and Columbus and add in Boston and Buffalo. Is that pretty much what it is? That's the current way of going about it. Now, keep everybody keep who's listening to this because this gets posted on a Wednesday. By the time you actually hear this, maybe there's a couple changes. I mean, there's still some you know wiggle wiggle room around Nashville about where they're going to be. They're currently set up in a quasi central southeast division, um, but you know there's and they're still working out a lot of details with respect to trades, with respect to rosters, with respect to. Um, AHL, since the AHL is looking for a February start date, if at all. 
and you know obviously travel concerns and everything pandemic related but uh yeah as of right now the devil's division goes from it's tough to yeah it's still tough uh yeah <laughs> it's i mean i think the devils are better than buffalo and then everybody else is going to be well let's see how far blackwood and crawford can carry <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's a pressure cooker too in terms of the schedule because these are not going to be you know games with normal spacing they're trying to fit everything in from january and it seems like they want to go through july at the latest is that right yes because uh their deal with nbc now nbc has the olympics this year it was supposed the olympics are supposed to be last year but obviously they didn't have the olympics due to the pandemic mm -hmm. so that got pushed back to 2021 and nbc uses pretty much all of their network channels and i mean all of yeah. them to air the olympics like you know every they they air literally every sport on every channel and you got to think nbc nbc sn is going to be a featured channel since it is literally the sports now if you haven't so, watched like 2 a.m curling on cnbc i highly recommend it <laughs> yeah or you know you just flip on i want to say they own court tv or now it's called true tv uh, and you know they'll have like handball or something yeah. um you know all all sorts of sports but nevertheless Needless to say, the NHL has to be done before the Olympics. Mm -hmm. Like, it just has to be done. There's not going to be a case where the NHL is going to continue to play their Stanley Cup playoff games going into the Olympics. The NBC is going to pick the Olympics over everything else because yes. they already interrupt their normal programming that, you know, introduce, you know, for some bizarre reason attracts people who don't care about sports. <laughs> um, I don't get it. You don't get it. But that's, that's okay. okay. It is what it is. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, it's got to be through to July. So you got to think the season's going to be running into May at the latest mm -hmm. or late April. Um, so, yeah, expect a lot of back-to-backs. And we'll see if the NHL is even considering three games in a row, similar to what the AHL does. I don't think the PA or the NHL wants to do that, yeah. but you only have so many days. It's true. It's true. And there's going to be, like you said, a lot more back-to-back -back series, a lot more three and four nights um, going on this year than you know, a normal year, there's going to be a lot of those stretches we've seen that have been disadvantageous to the past, for example, like six games in eight days may become a commonplace mm -hmm. thing. So uh, th this is not going to be easy for the Devils, and it's not going to be easy for any team. And so if you're looking at this division saying, well, I don't know how they compete here, just remember that there's these normalizing factors of the condensed schedule and the lack of travel considerations more so for this division than any of the other ones that have been uh, created for this. Yeah, that's probably the one solace that you could have for the Devils, and I guess by extension, our hated rivals, the Islanders, the second-rate rivals, mm -hmm. and, you know, is that, you know, there's not going to be a lot of long, and Boston, clean who really flight. needs the help, you know? Yeah, well, Boston, <laughs> I think, will probably be fine. Yeah. No, it's not going to be a case like the Canadi all-Canadian division where, you know, the teams are going to be flying across the, the country of Canada, mm -hmm. assuming that, of course, the provinces allow inter-province travel, which is another thing that's currently up in the air in Alberta of all places, mm -hmm. which is where the World Junior Championships is going to be held, in addition to, obviously, the two NHL teams, Edmonton and Calgary. Um, and uh, and who, we'll see whether or not the NHL is going to be so creative to say, well, until that is lifted or if it does happen, we'll have them play each other eight times or whatever the case may be. Uh, yeah, travel is not going to be... a a factor for the devils which is probably a bonus you know you don't have to get on flights you don't have to sit on too many planes uh, for a very long time but again you'll and this is traditional with past devil schedules that whatever gains you have in not having to get on a, onto a plane and change time zones that just means you get to play more back-to-backs so it's six or half dozen of the other in the bigger picture yeah so 
you know, it's luckily these are all bus ride, um, basically bus ride considerations for these teams. And if anything, it's like a half hour flight to the furthest destination they have uh, with oh, this yeah. division. So should be should be friendly for them to travel and the back-to-back consideration gets a lot easier if you think there's only a bus ride between games and not an entire flight so you know i can envision a lot of back-to-backs that are like rangers islanders in which case they don't even require a uh, you know bus ride to and from the game necessarily they could even go home in between games or it, re- oh, yeah. it really depends on where those games are even going to be hosted because you can see the possibility of the prudential center acting as a hub for all three new york teams potentially well, yes and no. I mean, right now the city of Newark, I mean, over the past month mm-hmm. uh, in Newark specifically, you know, they've been trying to lock things down, uh, obviously for pandemic related reasons. And, you know, if that is going to continue into January and February, then, you know, I don't know how a hub is necessarily going to work. I know there's a hotel nearby, like literally on the same block as the Prudential Center. But given that the NHL spent a an incredible amount of money to make the bubbles work. I don't know how willing people are going to be to buy out a whole hotel to host three teams and effectively bubble themselves. But in these times, Dan, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make it work somehow. And you know, it's not going to be fair. It's not going to be perfect. I know the devils are not, are not going to be given the promised extra training camp time that, uh, was promised back in the summer, but we don't live in a fair world well, right now. We're living in a world trying to make things happen. On that point, there might be a development there, and it's not nearly as much time as we thought they'd get, considering how long the return to team, uh, the return to play teams got uh, to actually play hockey. But what I saw from um, Ray Ferraro at least, or Darren Dreger, was at the very least the teams that did not participate in the return to play. Uh, would be back in camp December 31st, and then the rest of the teams would start their camps January 3rd. Now, I don't know how anyone's going to enforce that. I don't know how, you know, what difference that's going to make in the grand scheme of things. And it is kind of, you know, unfair that they did not get to participate again, but that's the nature of the world. Life is unfair sometimes, and they'll have to adapt just like everyone else to this chaotic global situation. And so, we're looking forward to the start of training camp here as more and more devils either return from loan or get loaned out as their standing with the team becomes clear and clear. But that all being said, um, at the beginning, we let off January 13th as the target date for the NHL to start play again. And uh, yeah, they're going to be starting after the NBA, which was a benefit that they enjoyed when they finished their return to play plan in the summer earlier and then stalled this out to the point where they will probably be caverned in by the NBA in terms of viewership. Well, again, you know, times are a bit different. You know, we've had, you know, back at the beginning of the pandemic, there was definitely a big concern of like, we're the sports, Mm -hmm. you know, like, what are we, what are we going to (laughs) watch? There's literally nothing happening. Um, And now, you know, over the past six months, most all the sports, major sports leagues has found a way to make things happen. MLS just had their season. And ironically, the team that got, something like nine players out due to coronavirus, mm-hmm. you know, won the championship. Congratulations to the Columbus crew. Wish it was the New York Red Bulls, but that wasn't going to happen for reasons I'm not going to get into because this is the Garden State of Hockey podcast and not the Garden State of Soccer podcast. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we've had NFL football. We're going to have baseball. There's obviously the NBA. So, I mean, there's not really an advantage to jumping in early or jumping in as the only team the only game in town, so to speak, like sports are back to some kind of normal. Um, so, I mean, it's a bit disappointing that they couldn't figure things out earlier, but 
you know, it's business as usual. You're going to be playing most of your games along with the NBA. Um, I think the big challenge is going to be whether or not, you know, just, again, the coronavirus is obviously the big elephant in the room here is, you know, you know, for the teams that are share, I'm sorry, the arenas that share both an NHL and an NBA team, you know, what happens if one team impacts the other? I know in the case of the Toronto Raptors, they're playing in Florida because Toronto, you know, the Canadian government and the Ontario government has basically said no one's traveling in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't have seven NBA teams in Canada. They only have one. So Toronto had to make adjustments, whereas the NHL is obviously going to stay up in Canada. But, oh, yeah. but again, you know, the, for the NHL, the big benefit is, you know, you get a season off. You end your TV contract. You could say, look, we met our requirements. We met our... Uh, met our obligations we players got paid we tried to make as much as we could hopefully this vaccine that comes out works as advertised mm -hmm. and um people hopefully by the fall of next year are going to be willing to go back to arenas and people will be allowed back into arenas and then we can get back to some type of business as usual for right. not just the nhl but the nba mls nfl football AHL hockey, ECHL hockey, college hockey, major junior hockey, and every European other aspect hockey. of our lives. <laughs> well, maybe not every aspect, but again, this is the Garden State of Hockey podcast True. and not the Garden State of Life podcast. That's a whole different podcast oh. that is, uh, you know, currently in development. Yeah, I'm a hockey blogger, but not a life blogger. So you're going to have to find somebody <laughs> who's more experienced with life than I am, Dan. <laughs> Uh, that all being said, let's take a quick break here because the next part of our podcast is going to be something that we've teased for a few weeks. And it's something that as we have this time going into the NHL season, uh, there, there seems to be a an inherent uh, titanic struggle between people who believe in this new analytics movement in the NHL. It's not that new at this point, but no. it's way more recent than the uh, the old eye test. And you know, the analytics is not something that's an all-encompassing tool, but it is very powerful for the purposes of prediction, very powerful for the purposes of projection. And so we're going to give a little bit of a briefer on uh, several aspects of analytics over the next few podcasts just to see, you know, how we can relate that best to uh, why that translates into being a good predictive tool, how, uh, you know, what statistics that analysts and you know hockey pundits look at to determine whether or not a team is likely to be successful or not and of course all of this doesn't matter because sports at their root are played by human beings and human beings have their own psychology to take care of but we're talking about the raw numbers and prediction of play so after this commercial break we'll launch into our discussion of the Corsi statistic which is one i'm sure a lot of you have heard of and a lot of you have questions about so we'll be happy to walk you through that right after this Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, welcome back, everybody. And as I said before the commercial break, we're going to start today and we're going to start the analytics discussion as a whole with a statistic called Corsi. And Corsi doesn't really stand for anything. It's named after uh, someone. Is that correct, John? So, OK, here's the here's the story, because there is actually a story. <laughs> oh, OK, here so, we go. 
So the, the man who helped popularize the concept of Corsi is Tim Barnes, who used to blog under the name Vic Ferrari for a blog called Irreverent Oilers Fans. And Tim Barnes, by the way, currently works for the Washington Capitol since 2014. So this is going back to like 2006, 2007, by the way. He, he came up with the idea of naming the count of shooting attempts after Jim Corsi, which is, who was a goaltender coach for the Buffalo Sabres, mostly because he liked his mustache. <laughs> I wish I was making that up. He, he actually confirmed that to Bob McKenzie, who, who <laughs> looked into this back in 2015. It turned out to be an act, a, 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 in a case of wonderful serendipity that it actually was a, a, an appropriate choice because Corsi, the, the, the coach, actually did count up shooting differentials um, for Buffalo back in the 70s to count up a goaltender's workload. Since he, being a goaltender coach and having played the position, understands that just because the shot may not be on net doesn't mean that you do nothing. You don't just stand in the crease and do nothing. You you react, you move, you get mentally prepared. And so even if only 20 out of like 50 shooting attempts get on net, as a goaltender, you're really having to work with 50 shots. And it was a method to look at how well um, the goaltender was handling their workload, whether or not they were getting fatigued, whether or not they were getting put out of sorts. Back back in the 70s, goaltending was a lot more like soccer goaltending, with, with which was like more reactive as opposed to like positioning yourself and things like things of that, that nature. So, yeah, so that's that's the story behind the name. So he was on to something. Barnes, he, Tim Barnes accidentally picked picked somebody who actually was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and so, the, you know, Corsi himself was onto something here, counting shot totals with the context of goaltenders, just that someone took that stat and instead of naming it shot attempts, which is any time that a shot goes towards the opponent's goal, whether it is a shot on goal, whether it misses the net, whether it's blocked, that is all included in this total. And that relates to uh, pretty much an elementary concept of, well, if you're the one taking shots on goal, chances are your team is in possession of the puck. And when you have possession of the puck, you are more likely to win a game because you can only score, well, not only, but you can usually only score when your team is in possession of the puck. And so that all relates back to this concept of puck possession and this Corsi statistic, which is the shot attempt difference between your team and uh, the opponent's team. And also you can modify um, whether you do it by player, what happens when they're on the ice, what happens when they're on the ice with certain teammates. But at its core, this is a statistic that measures shot attempts made by a team. Yes, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because it actually has turned out to be a very good proxy for possession. Back in the day, and I say back in the day, say before 2006, NHL.com's box scores actually included attack time, like how long the team was in the offensive zone. You, they don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But even then, you know, attack time could be just you're hanging onto the puck, but you're fighting a lot of board battles for a minute or so, or, you know, you're holding onto the puck at the blue line or the case may be, it doesn't tell you like, what are you doing on the ice? Shooting attempts does. It's an actual act. It's an actual event in the play-by-play -play log. The scorer records it. And to your point, Dan, if, you ha if you're taking a shooting attempt, 99% of the time, you're in the offensive zone. Mm -hmm. And 99% of the time, or even 100% of the time, I should say, your team has the puck. Right. So it means, you know, and obviously if you're the team defending this, which was often the devil's last season, you don't have the puck. Even if you're even if you're keeping the shot attempt to a, a relatively good location, 
you still don't have the puck. You're still not on offense. You're still stuck in your end of the rink. So that basic concept led to so many advancements with what we now call analytics. And, you know, back in the day, we use it as a proxy for possession. Now we just recognize it as just Corsi as it is. But that was really the main driver for it. And it turned out that Corsi could start predicting future results since um, since there's obviously more shooting attempts than there are, say, goals or even shots on net alone. Mm-hmm. And a good example of this being a predictive statistic that – uh, you know, a, a lot of people were shocked by the certain outcome of is actually related to the Devils. And when you look at the 2012 Los Angeles Kings, especially in the month before the playoffs and leading up to it, their statistics in this possession based stat just balloon upward. Obviously, they got a lot of uh, help by Jonathan Quick playing completely out of his mind that whole period of time. But they also were a great possession team that were playing much better than the level of an eight seed in that conference. You know, teams that were surprised by them arriving really miss the fact that their style of play was reflective of this possession. It was very hard to get the puck back from the Kings, and every single line was good at that possession metric. So despite them, you know, needing help in the final days of the season to even make the playoffs once they were there they could credibly be viewed as a threat that a not that not a lot of people saw coming but this stat did predict this stat did show that they were a strong team very capable of possessing and moving the puck and that was going to lead to goals and as long as quick kept up his level of play they would have the dominant run that we saw them have in 2012 yes and general and even more recently with respect to this past season um, if you look at the top 10 teams by point percentage, so the teams with the best 10 records in the in the NHL, nine out of 10 of them finished above 50% in Corsi four percentage, meaning they took more attempts than their opposition over the whole season. And while, you know, yes, there were some very good teams in terms of Corsi that were terrible for other reasons, like Montreal that barely made the return to play format and LA, ironically enough, who stunk, but except they handled the puck pretty well. Um, the reality, however, is th- it's it's common for the good teams to be good in this stat. Maybe they're not number one, mm-hmm. but they're not, you know, they're not dragging. They're not like the New Jersey Devils who finished. Oh, dear. <laughs> Where did the Devils finish with this? Oh, yeah. Forty six percent. Meaning yep. the Devils took forty six percent of all the shooting attempts in all of their games last season. In other words, other teams enjoyed playing the New Jersey Devils. Yeah, so when we... And and as you saw by the record, they they were also largely successful. Well, when we talk about Corsi as a statistic, too, we're not talking about the raw numbers of shot attempts. It's, It's like you alluded to. We're talking about what percentage of the shot attempts taken in the game are taken by the Devils. And so... Uh, 46% is not a good number. And conversely, you know, having a good percentage does not necessarily mean you're going to make the playoffs. There's obviously luck that factors in. There's, there's all kinds of weird bounces that can happen. This is a game played on ice with a small rubber disc. There's going to be a lot of weird things that are possible. Uh, mental lapses, all that thing, all that stuff gets factored in. Uh, for example, if you look at the 2013, 14 devils, which were a positive possession team, missed the playoffs by four points. And uh, we're one of the most brutally unlucky teams that <laughs> has played in the last decade. And, and I'm glad you brought that team up because that's my example. That was my realization that a team cannot live on Corsi alone. Mm-hmm. You just, I mean, yes, you you definitely want to have a good value in this category. But, you know, the, the 2013-14 Devils, they had the fifth lowest shooting percentage in the league. So a lot of their shots just didn't go in the net. 
their goaltending was well below the league median. They were 25th in team save percentage. That was the season where they went 0 for 13 in the shootout. <laughs> so, and, and their special teams, you know, weren't enough to carry the difference. Like the way I would view it as is almost like a balancing act. Like, yes, you can be a great team in terms of Corsi, but if you absolutely stink in these other aspects, like if you're not finishing shots, if your goaltending isn't there, if your special teams is not uh, successful enough, if you're blowing shootouts and dropping points otherwise, guess what? That's how you miss the playoffs, despite being a team that otherwise is a really tough team to play against in the run of play. And again, L.A. was a great example of this from last season. Montreal was an even better example from this past season where – you didn't want to play Montreal unless you were able to get shots on Carey Price and Carey Price would let them in. Um, and also more relevant to the Metropolitan Division, this was Carolina's problem for the better part of the last decade where they were a remarkably tough team to play against, but they never got the finishing. They never got the goaltending. They never got the special teams. They didn't get all the other things that you need to win to win games over an 82 game season. Right. So they were uh, they were mostly missed the playoffs. And um, so, yeah, so that I'm very, very happy you brought that point up. Yeah, and I'm sorry that we had to bring back up the 2014. Dodgers. That's the that one that sad. comes to mind the most because you watch this team and you're like, this isn't a bad team, and they're so close the whole time. But that 0 and 13 shootout marker, truly, truly, egregiously bad. It was something that we knew it would hold them up from making the playoffs, but we didn't know to what extent that would happen. And now that we know to what extent it happened, it it's all that more frustrating. Right. But let's let's take a step back, Dan, and away from the sadness of the 2013-14 Devils. Mm. And, and let's jump on to, you know, why Corsi is such a building block. Mm -hmm. Like what? Because, again, it led to a lot of other developments that we use in other stats and in, a, in other general concepts that we recognize in games, but now can actually like put a number to. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Corsi uh, helped make people realize that for stats, especially you want to be mindful of your game situation. A lot of times Corsi is presented for even strength or five on five play only. And that's because special teams skew it very much in one direction or the other, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. If you're on a power play, you want to be on offense. If you're on a penalty kill, you're not going to be on offense. You're killing a penalty. You're on defense. So rather than trying to have special teams muddle the water, so to speak, we just remove it entirely from the equation, so to speak. We only care about um, Corsi from a five-on-five five or an even strength perspective, so this way we're not going to be skewed in a game or over a season because a team was more disciplined or less disciplined than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's... I don't know. It, it's something that... There's also certain players, you know, we talk about things like shot quality, and when you ignore things like that, certain players can look a lot better by this statistic than most other ones. Well, hold your thought on shot quality for a mm -hmm. moment, because we'll, we'll, I'll touch on some of the drawbacks, of course. Mm -hmm. you, you hit on one of them. Um, but let's go over, you know, just some of the other developments that came out of it, um, why it's such a powerful stat, so to speak, mm -hmm. and why it's been such a re revelation. Another big factor, of course, is using rates over raw numbers. Because not everybody plays the same amount of ice time. Not every team plays the same amount of ice time. Um, for example, the New Jersey Devils, um, their leader of raw Corsi, meaning they were on the ice for more shooting attempts than any other Devil last season, was Damon Severson, which makes sense because he also played the most ice time last season in five on five. However, because he is a defenseman and because he played so much as a defenseman, his rate of Corsi is not the highest. 
his highest was at the highest on the team last season was Nikita Gusev, mm-hmm. somebody that we more associate as being an offensive player. And that's one of the reasons as to why. So you have to be careful about using it's why we use rates like a per 60 minute rate as opposed to the raw number instead of saying, oh, you was on the ice for like a thousand Corsi attempts mm-hmm. in a game situation. You may want to say the raw number, you know, but in terms of multiple games a season, you want to use a rate. Um, Corsi helped introduce us to the concept of score effects, mm-hmm. which, again, if you watch games, you know this intuitively you know if your team is losing by one in the third period you know you know damn the torpedoes and start going forward you're only down by one they're gonna go, press go a little harder a which translates in the coursey way to they're gonna have more shot attempts later in the game and that's something that you know you can look at the end result of the game and say yeah this team outshot this one by you know 30 attempts but it was four nothing in the middle of the first period and so they kind of had to or else they would get caved in even further Exactly. And, you know, that's why people who snarkily say, oh, but, you know, the Devils won the course, even though they lost. Yeah, because they didn't score enough goals. So, of course, they're going to take more shooting attempts to try to score goals. (laughs) Um, By the way, the Devils were very bad at, you know, when they were trailing. I mean, the majority of the league when they're trailing is like above well above 50 percent course. The Devils were at 48 percent last season. Um, But even then, that was still better than their five on five Corsi in all scoring situations of 46%. So I guess it's another example of when you're trailing, you definitely take more, more of the shooting attempts because you should. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you're defending a lead, you know, especially if you're up for nothing after the first period, uh, you don't have that incentive to keep scoring goals unless the other team is just mailing it in and you're just, you know, having a day. Um, That's just, again, to your point, you know, the human, the human reaction, it's, we got this game in the bag, just relax. Um, Scorer bias was another thing that Corsi helped identify. And if you're a Devils fan, then you probably have heard here and there on the broadcast from Steve or Steve and Dano or even Doc and Chico that, hey, I thought there were more shots in that period. (laughs) Seems like we undercounted the shots. Well, it turned out the Devils have been undercounting shots for years. (laughs) Now, scorer bias can be its own discussion and it's a, a general drawback for all analytics, I would say. But I'm I'm just going to highlight the fact that because of course we learned that yeah no we're not our eyes are not deluding us in, in some arenas the data is just not matching up to reality mm-hmm. and you know we kind of have to deal with it context is massively important with Corsi a great example of this would be Blake Coleman last season so Blake Coleman led the Devils in Corsi four percentage. Uh, when he was on the ice, the Devils took 49%, 49.6% of the shooting attempts. When your leader is below 50% on the team, that's not good, Dan. <laughs> that's very not good. <laughs> now, does that mean that Coleman was bad in five-on-five hockey, though? And the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Because, partially because, A, he was the leader of the team, and B, we have evidence. Because uh, he was traded to Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. So he was traded to Tampa Bay, and while he wasn't used in the same way in Tampa Bay that he was in New Jersey, in his nine regular season games, he still put he put up a 50-point – when he was on the ice, Tampa Bay put up 50.2% of the shooting attempts. So already, just in a change of team, you see a, 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 an improvement. And in the playoffs, over the 25 games he played, when he was on the ice, the Lightning had 55.9% of the <laughs> shooting attempts, which is really, really good. By the way – if you're on ice Corsi for a player is above 55%, they're really, 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 really good at it. Very few players are that high. Um, only one player was actually at 60% last season. 
Um, not on the Devils no, or Lightning. No. <laughs> he, he was on Montreal. But uh, nevertheless, the point I'm trying to say here is that even though he was on his, the surface below 50%, which is negative mm-hmm. on New Jersey, the fact that he was a leader on a bad Devils team does not mean that he himself was bad in five on five. He was a, he was suffering due to the team. And that's the kind of context that of course he helped highlight more than you can get from say points or plus minus or ice time or whatever other basic metric you could, you, you saw at NHL.com. Corsi also led us to the realization of relative stats, whereas, you know, most stats are on ice stats. Well, what is the difference between when the player is on the ice and off the ice? And Coleman is a great example of re- why relative uh, stats are important because when Coleman jumped onto the ice for a shift, the devil's Corsi rate include improved by 4.8%. Mm-hmm. Like, so, and likewise, I'm sorry, the Devils Corsi for rate, meaning the number of attempts the Devils took, and the Devils Corsi against, which is the number of attempts they allowed, dropped by 4.3 per 60 minutes. In other words, while Coleman's total Corsi was still below 50%, the relative Corsi highlights the fact that when Coleman stepped on the ice, the Devils played better. The Devils took more attempts and allowed fewer attempts, which is exactly what you want in players playing well for your team. Mm-hmm. So it means it's more evidence that Coleman was a better player than what his CF percentage may look like. And you can tell when you look at that, that they were a different team with Coleman on the ice. It was just something that was so visible when he was there and when he wasn't there that, um, yeah, you can intuit part of this statistic as well. And it's important to note that when we talk about these things, they're more valuable to talk about, uh, as you've mentioned before, in five-on-five play because that's the most common state of play. There's also things affected, um, you know, that affect Coleman's Corsi, for example, like he played a lot on the penalty kill. And obviously when you're on the penalty kill, there will be a lot of shot attempts against. And if you look at the raw numbers, then yeah, it'll reflect that. But the the more valuable version of this statistic definitely comes in five on five and all the statistics that spawn from it, um, all the analysis that came out of it, all the additional uh, considerations are also for five on five play because, again, to reiterate, it is the most common state of play. It is the uh, the way that you'll find the game more often than not, and so that would be the easy the best way to predict uh, what could happen in the game at its average state. Right. And and speaking in a more holistic sense, Dan, the benefit of this stat, the, the benefit of all stats, Dan, is that the reality is we can't watch every single hockey game. Mm-hmm. We can't remember every single hockey game. I couldn't tell you every single game the Devils played last season, and I probably recapped, you know, a good third of the games myself and to great detail. You know, I have to read my read, read the post at all about the jersey to remind myself of these games, mm-hmm. which is why we write as much as we do. Um, but the stat the benefit of any stat is that I don't need to remember or watch every single game and then make sure I paid enough attention to make sure that I I, I come to the right conclusion. The stat will give me evidence objectively to say, this is what happened on the ice. And Corsi, you know, as a whole, you know, yes, you know, there's a lot of things that people do on the ice that don't show up on the box score, you know, whether or not it's winning a a board battle, making a good entry pass into the offensive zone, Mm -hmm. Uh, keeping the puck in play in the offenses or stuff like that. But they generally lead to offensive opportunities like a shooting attempt. So if you're doing a lot of those good things on the ice that don't show up in the stats, so to speak, CF will start crediting you more. 
It's very hard, and Coleman is a great example of that because he's one of those players that does a lot of those little things correctly for the Devils. With with Corsi, we can now actually put a number to it, and therefore I can tell somebody who say, who unfortunately does not follow the New Jersey Devils, they follow, like, I don't know, um, Winnipeg, and, and say, hey, Blake Coleman's, like, good at hockey. And they could be like, well, how do you know that? And I could say, well, his relative rate stats on a bad Devils team were really good, and here they are. And they can go, oh, he's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. That's that's the be- that's the ultimate benefit of this building block. More than t- points, more than anything else, you know, that is has been commonly recorded for the past hundred years in hockey. You know, Corsi allows us to to give us more insight of what happens on the ice when that player is playing, regardless of whether or not their team is scoring or not. Right, and and again, like this spawns a lot of other statistics that we can uh, consider in coming weeks of the podcast but we wanted to just introduce this concept of Corsi as a predictor of uh you know possession and goal scoring because it is it is the key it is what unlocks all further analyses because you're basically taking iterations of the Corsi statistic and uh warping it to examine different things like those rate statistics you were talking about um it even factors into things like shooting percentage it factors into things like um it factors into, like we said, relative to teammate rates. On that bad team, if you're still relatively good compared to your teammates, chances are you're still a pretty decent player and your team's just having a bad year. So we've seen plenty of examples of that, and we'll come with some specifics to kind of uh, review what we've talked about so far today and introduce the next one in the analysis portion. What do you think, John? I think that makes sense, but I think before we get into that, Dan... Mm-hmm. We should we should highlight that Corsi does have some drawbacks. It, it, it's a power it was a bit powerful building block, but it's not everything. And I think that's where a lot of people who you know um, don't get into analytics or they disregard it. You know, you know, and I, I and I get it. A lot of people, myself included, in the past. And when I say the past, I'm going back 10, 12 years with this, because um, Corsi really came out of the prior decade. Like <laughs> it, it, it's been around for quite some time a lot of the original developers of this stat and, and people who argue and do studies into it, you know, have been or are still hired by NHL teams. But, um, you know, it's not everything. As mentioned, you know, you can be a good team by Corsi, but that doesn't mean you're going to be a playoff team or a Stanley Cup winning team. Um, Corsi is literally just the count of shooting attempts. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't tell you, like, where the shooting attempts were made. It doesn't tell you how likely that attempt is going to go into the net if it was on net at all. Um, it really only applies to skaters because goaltenders, well, they're on the ice all the time, so it doesn't really matter, um, you know, what their Corsi value is. And and also the goaltender's main job is to stop pucks. They they don't take shooting attempts. Right. Um, and, and more to the point, it does take time for Corsi to mean something. You know, you can look at a game and, yeah, you know, if – let's say Jack Hughes, you know, he's on the ice and, you know, the other team takes 10 shooting attempts while he's on the ice. Well, he's on the ice for two by the devils. That means something we can say, okay, Hughes probably had a pretty rough game, but if Hughes has is on the ice for 10 shooting attempts by the devils and the other team took nine, well, that doesn't really tell me that much about Hughes and how he performed. Other than that, there were some good points and there were some bad points. He had an okay game. Mm-hmm. You know, you it takes some time before we can really make a conclusion based off of Corsi if they're doing well or not. And unfortunately, teams, hockey bloggers, <laughs> betters, general managers, and players, everybody 
has to make decisions on the information that they have, and they don't have the luxury of waiting 10 days to make a conclusion. Yeah, it's uh, much easier you know, to see a games. bad trend with a small sample size. <laughs> exactly, but you have to be careful because that bad trend in the sample size could just be, well, just a bad trend. It's not necessarily going to last. You have one bad but game, you... yeah, where you're just completely, you know, outclassed in every way, and in the next game, you do the same thing to someone else, and you average out somewhere in the middle, but... Again, that sample size factor is huge because it also relates to what we were talking about with the relative rates between you and your teammates and how much ice time you get. That's something that dictates exactly the size of that sample. Exactly. And unfortunately, as as we alluded to earlier, life is not fair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, success bias is a real thing in, in, in a lot of things. And, and hockey statistics are no different. But that's, again, a different subject that we'll get into later. Um and, and again, as we really touched on with the 2013-14 Devils, Corsi is not everything. Like, you can be a good Corsi team or a good Corsi player, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be successful. It's hard to not be successful if you have a good value, but it is possible and it does happen. And and I guess the last drawback, Dan, is Corsi only goes back as far as 2006-2007. And that's because the league did not record, or I should say publicly record, shooting attempts mm-hmm. in their box scores. Like you can go to an NHL.com box score and you can see, you know, in the, in the event summary, how many shots Jack Hughes had, how many blocked shots, or I should say attempts blocked did Jack Hughes mm-hmm. have, how many missed shots does he have from that? We, we get Corsi. But if, but if we were to look at Patrick Elias from say the 2000, 2001 season, <laughs> uh, you know, where he's put up 96 points, I can't tell you a single thing about his Corsi because they weren't recording that, which is sad because he probably had an incredibly good one since he was a very, very good player by Corsi standards from 2006 up until the end of his careers. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we did not, unfortunately, that stat was not possible uh, for the peak of Eliash's career from a production standpoint. And there are so. projects that seek to go back and watch some footage of those old games and actually track the players' Corsi um, through that just, just by watching the games. And it takes obviously a lot of work and a lot of time to watch through all those games, but it led to a lot more discussions of players, you know, and their consideration for the hall of fame, for example, uh, like Sergei Zubov. Sergei Zubov is a good example of someone who got a big, big benefit from the analytical push in showing that his value to a team was much more than the points he scored. It was much more than the, you know, whatever leadership and tangible you want to put in. He was actually, ridiculous at Corsi and so that led to a lot of wins for his teams and merited a lot more conversation um, for the Hall of Fame and eventually got him in so it's something that um, there's going to be players that you find that you don't realize were as good as they were but uh, it's because they didn't necessarily show up on the score sheet the same way and it's going to take a lot of time to fully track and catalog these things because there's a lot of footage for old games that just isn't available anymore and so you'll never know what the shot attempts look like in that game all you see is the shots on goal exactly and you know i'm glad you brought up zubov as a great example i think one of the big benefits in general about this is that it allows us to discuss in more detail about how good players are outside of scoring. Like I, I, and I'll admit this as a, as a younger fan that, you know, it, you tend to think, Oh, the guys who score the most points are the best players. And the reality is and that's not always the case because the game of hockey doesn't have a lot of scoring in it. Uh, it's not like basketball where they're scoring, li- you know, where it's scoring is very often scoring is very limited and similar to soccer. You know, you can look, you, you hear players and, and fans talk about, you know, midfielders or, or center backs or wing backs 
that are great players and you look at their scoring and you're like, when did they score? Like, how are they good? And it's like, oh, there's more to it than that. And thanks to stats like Corsi, we can now do that for hockey and give more respect to the Sergei Zubovs of the world. And, you know, if I want to drag myself back into history, if we go back about a decade for the Devils, um, you know, not only did Eliash and Parise look good by these standards, but so did a younger Travis Zajac. So did Jamie Langenbrunner. So did Paul Martin and, and Johnny Oduya, two defensemen that, you know, unfortunately had to follow in the footsteps of, you know, Nina Meyer, Rafalski, um, and Stevens, you know, Corsi shows that, no, those guys, were, those defensemen were very good at the run of play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can give a lot more respect to them. You can even give a shout out to Carol Ratchenek, who played very <laughs> Carl limited. Carl Rakunik. You know, Carl Rakunik. See, I can't even get the guy's <laughs> name right. But the guy, you know, on the 2007-08 Devils, I can now look this up at Natural Stat Trick and, and tell you, oh, when he was on the ice, the Devils took 55.4% of the percent uh, shooting attempts. He probably helped the Devils do well. <laughs> and he did. Yeah. Like- you know, even though he didn't play that much or – doesn't get enough respect because he wasn't the big minute defenseman. And, um, you know, it's Kyle Rakunik. Uh, it's not exactly, you know, a big star, but, you know. Well, Bryce Salvador, 2012 playoffs. Fair, another good Bender. example. You know, <laughs> it wasn't just the point scoring. It was, you know, the run of play. Mm-hmm. You know, that his pairing with Zidliski worked well, despite the fact that one primarily played one direction and the other pr- primarily played in the other direction. Um, you know? It, it, you know, that's that's the real joy of Corsi and why it's still relevant even to this day, despite the fact that it was named after, you know, some guy under an anonymous uh, figure naming it after a Buffalo goaltending coach because he liked his mustache. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, things have been named after things for less interesting reasons. But, yeah, that's the Corsi statistic. And, uh, you know, just digest over that. If you have any questions, I'll link to the primer article that John has already written for the site as we develop out more of this field of analytics. And even in our discussion today, you can see just how uh, just how much of an influence it has on and the strength of its predictive capability. And like we said, there's obviously limitations to any statistic, and it's not all-encompassing. There's things to account for that you can't plainly see in numbers in the run of play. But for the most part, if you're looking at a large sample size of a lot of hockey games over a long period of time, Corsi will be a pretty good indicator of which teams are going to do better than others. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that primer, and we'll be back to tackle another statistic like this uh, next week and kind of relate them all to each other, too. Like we said, everything stems from this initial discussion of uh, puck possession and shot attempts. So Uh, There's plenty to go into as we uh, delve through the world of advanced statistics, but make it, you know, presentable in a way that when you're watching the games, you can kind of keep track of, okay, I can get a feel for who's throwing more shot attempts on net. When I look at the numbers, it's very likely to confirm that their uh, their Corsi value was pretty good this game and they I can reasonably say they played pretty well. All right, so all that being said, thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoyed these this intro to hockey statistics, and we'll be back next week for more NHL discussion, if there's any World Junior Championship news, if any Devils prospects do something great, like Jaeger Sharangovich scoring goals on goals on goals, and for the next part of our uh, hockey statistics primer. So thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and week, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>